Hello and welcome. You have discovered On Mike with Jordan Rich, the podcast dedicated to the art of creative conversation. And today we're going to have some fun. My guest is Phil Proctor, one of the founding members of the Fire Sign Theater, the legendary comedy group who got together in L.A. in 1966 and released over 35 albums. And now the Fire Sign Theater and Stand Up Records present a new double LP compilation, Dope Humor of the 70s, a two-record set including 83 minutes of previously uncollected funny bits from the Fire Sign Theater's notorious Dear Friends era back in the early 1970s. Here's just a little sample. It takes a village to raise the dead. <laughs> I'm Lord Eddie Beaverbrook, owner and chief in Zomniac at Unconscious Village. And it's the last day of our last day sale. So read them the gospel slick. Thanks, boss. Hey, put yourself down under this. It's a horn dog of Babylon, struggle snuff, smother set, and sulfur slack claw. You'd prophesize a price at a thousand dollars, but read my forehead. Six, sixty-six, sixty-six. Rise now, or I come to your bedroom with my long rod to measure you for the last bed you'll ever need. Okay, Loach, we got them all. You tell them, little Eddie. I said it, Dad. I'm up to my gonads in Rapture Sauce, Christian Slater's, Lamb of Gods, Downey Jr.'s, and Seven Sealies at Unconscious Village. I am asleep. You are. Wrestling with stress puppies in the data swamp. Speed skating with wolves on the glass ceiling. Beating off the rat race with a mouse. Face it, you're too busy to lose the kind of money you're making. It's time to put our strong hand in your pocket. Turn it over. Give it up. Submit to boom.bust. Fly in on a boom. Drive home on a bus. Boom.bust. A platform agnostic, browser blind, big bubble, bit broker. From US Whatgate Plus. I can't wait to talk to this radio and comedy legend Phil Proctor about his career, about the Firesign Theater, and about making people laugh. So, without any further ado, let's welcome Phil and go on mic. This is really exciting stuff. Now, I have to take you back a little bit. Let's talk a little bit about meeting Peter, Peter Bergman. And right. you guys you guys did it at some little school called Yale, is that right? Yeah, um, um, I went to Yale from Riverdale and Allen Stevenson School in New York and Bronx, uh, respectively, uh, because of my love of, of theater and acting and singing and music and uh, the recruiters from the various colleges said, you're going to be bored if you go to Middlebury. But, you know, because I also was a linguistic, I'm a polyglot. I speak seven languages, and I've always loved languages. He said, you got to go to Yale because it's got a great drama school. And that's really what I did. And that's where I met Peter Bergman. Okay, in my, uh, I guess it was my second year, my sophomore year, <clears throat> might even have been my junior year for all I know, uh, I was uh, drafted to play the lead in a musical comedy called, uh, based on uh, Tom Jones, the story of Tom Jones. And I played the title role. And uh, this guy, Peter Bergman, co-authored the lyrics for this book written by Austin Pendleton, mm. this play written by Austin Pendleton. And, uh, and so I got to collaborate with him, uh, you know, not intimately yet, but, uh, but as, you know, a member of the team, and then the next play that we did was a musical based on the story of Junius Brutus Booth and uh, uh, Edwin Booth and John Wilkes Booth 
uh, which was a famous acting family back in the sure. turn of the century. Uh, and uh, it was called Booth is Back in Town, and I played Edmund Booth. And uh, Bergman wrote the lyrics all by himself for that particular musical, also created by Austin Pendleton. So at that point, we really be- became uh, friends. And uh, when, when we all went our separate ways, uh, I really, you know, you, you don't expect to see too many of your, of your uh, college friends again. But, but all of those of us who were in the business, we continued to be in contact. <clears throat> we did most of our work in the Dramat. This was the Dramat, the, the Undergraduate Dramatic Association, not the drama school, even though we used their facilities and we could take courses there. I got a BA in drama, uh, taking a course there. But we had this incredible group of people, Sam Waterston, Peter Hunt, mm. John Batham, Austin Pendleton, Peter Bergman, Skip Hennett, Billy Hennett, all these, uh, Tom Ligon, all people who have made a mark on the entertainment industry. Again, for those of you who may not be that familiar, Peter Hunt was a, he just passed away, and he was a famous Broadway director and directed 1776 and all kinds of wonderful things. And John Batham, who was our stage manager at the Dramat, went on to, to direct Saturday Night Fever and all kinds of wonderful uh, movies and television shows. And we're still friends. I still have a chance to have lunch with him occasionally, and, and we, uh, we chew over old times. So off we go. I'll, I go off in my life. I'm doing an off-Broadway show, first one uh, um, uh, that I've ever done. And, and I meet this girl named Susan Ansbach. Oh, yes. And she, unfortunately, passed away a couple of years ago yeah, now. Yeah. But she was a beautiful girl and an absolutely amazing actress. And, we, uh, and she came and stayed with me uh, for a couple of nights at my, uh, uh, my Brownstone walk-up on West 11th Street near the White Horse Cafe. And one morning, like the second morning, there's a knock on my door, and I open it, and it's Peter Bergman, and he's in an army uniform, and he's carrying a guitar. Hmm. Okay? I say, come on in, right? You, you want some coffee or heroin, you know? And, and he sits down, and uh, I introduce him to Susan, and we have a jolly old catch-up, and he sits and he, he, and he, he sings and plays... Uh, uh, wobbly songs, uh, mm. uh, workers' songs. You know, um, mm. uh, this land is your land, and and you can, and I'll sell it to you for for uh, twelve dollars and ninety nine cents. And 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 that was a real reconnection. Off he goes on his life. Off I go on my life. I continue to do uh, plays on Broadway and off Broadway, and and tell. And I'm, I'm I'm the first job I got on TV was on the show called The Edge of Night, soap opera. Sure. And I was playing, of course, a juvenile delinquent, <laughs> <laughs> right, named Julie Kurtz. <clears throat> and uh, by the way, all of these stories you can read for yourself with, uh, profusely illustrated with a bunch of great pictures in my book, Where's My Fortune Cookie, co-authored by uh, uh, Schreiber uh, and uh, a friend of mine. And uh, it... it the stories are amazing because just like Bergman showing up at my door, most all of my life, and it's not over yet, has been kind of psychically connected. Mm. You know, Brad Schreiber, uh, he, he forced me to sit down here in my home in Benedict Canyon 
and he had a tape recorder, and he said, you got to tell your story now before you can, well, you can still remember it, okay? <laughs> yes. And, and so I did, and, yeah. and, went, and, and in the course of, of telling the story, I realized all of these incredible coincidences that happened. All right, now, I'm going to tell you how I reconnected with Peter Bergman and the Firesign Theater happened. I did a show called The Amorous Flea, uh, which brought me out to California and got uh, to Los Angeles, Hollywood, where we played for quite a good time. I had to go back then to to, uh, uh, to be featured in a musical on Broadway called The Time for Singing, which was a wonderful musical based on a Welsh mining disaster that wiped out an entire family. Great musical comedy stuff, right? <laughs> uh, it's from adapted from the book How Green Was My Valley. Oh, yes, right. Right? Yeah. right? Okay. And it was a fine musical. So anyway... After that, <clears throat> I understudied Brandon DeWilda, who was a child star most people would best known uh, from Shane. Shane, come back, Shane. Yes, yes. Okay, and he had a, a, a very good movie career, and, uh, uh, and, and he was in a play called A Race of Hairy Men by Evan Hunter, which was uh, uh, an attempt by Evan to, uh, to represent the youth revolution well, that was coming. You know, uh, based on uh, the anti-war sentiments and all of that, but it was just beginning to happen. And he wrote a play about it. Uh, and I and Brandon, we bonded. We became very good friends. He was married to a, a girl who was the sister of one of my classmates at Yale, and uh, we we drove out to L.A. together because Brandon wanted to. After that play closed, of course, we drove out to L.A. together because Brandon wanted to get back into films. And we connected up with Peter Fonda. I'm still not sure in my mind how that happened. I guess Brandon uh, wanted to to, to, talk, to to hang out with him or something. And we did. We were like the Three Musketeers. Uh, Peter was going through a ridiculous um, uh, marijuana bust trial, okay? And we were there to support him and everything. And we, we, we became, the three of us became very close friends. And uh, then I... Uh, let me see if I can figure this out. Yeah, so so one one day we hear that there's going to be a demonstration on the Sunset Strip. This is like, uh, I guess, uh, early, uh, maybe late 60s, uh, to, to protest a curfew that they were trying to put on the kids to stop them from protesting the Vietnamese War and openly smoking pot on the street and, you know, and free sex and all, all those horrible things that the young people love to do. And uh, so there is a demonstration, obviously. Everybody shows up, and so do the, uh, the L.A. police force and the sheriff's department. And they are trying to create a riot by doing a pincer movement and pushing everybody together into a big mob, right? And suddenly they then declare it an unlawful celebration, and they... Uh, they wailed into the crowd. I held. I was writing for the, the East Village other, and I held up my press card, and so nobody bothered me. But Brandon got beaten up, and Peter got arrested, and we had to deal with all that the next day. But during that demonstration, we sat down in front of a club called Pandora's Box, you know, saying we will not be moved, you know. And I sat down on an open issue of the L.A. Free Press, which was kind of the radical newspaper for our generation pulled it out from under my butt, and I had sat on Peter Bergman's face. There was a picture <laughs> that said, 
KPFK newsman Peter Bergman interviews returning Vietnam War vets. I said, what? Bergman's out here, and he's doing a, he's on the radio? So after the next day, after we bailed uh, Peter out and uh, Brandon got you know his wounds taken care of, I called Peter Bergman at KPFK. And uh, he, well, actually, I called KPFK. They gave me his number. I called him. And he said, yeah, I'm, I'm the Wizard of Oz. I thought, oh, boy, he's off the deep end. Mm. He said, no, I do a show called Radio Free Oz on KPFK, Pacifica Station, listener-supported, from like 10 to 1 in the morning. <clears throat> Why don't you come down? I'm on five days a week. Why don't you come down and play with us on the show? I said, sure. So that night, I show up at KPFK, and uh, I meet two other guys. I meet a guy named Phil Austin, who is producing Peter's show, right? And another guy named David Osman, who was, you know, uh, one of the kingpins of of KPFK and did all kinds of of great things with them. And uh, we discovered we were all fire signs. Okay, I'm a Leo. <laughs> uh, David and Peter are Sagittarians, and Phil Austin is unfortunately an Aries. Okay, and and that was funny because Bergman's show, Radio Free Eyes was a counterculture call-in new age talk show, okay? It was like he, he created this whole new genre of, uh, of talk show entertainment. And so we, he would take calls from people who wanted to have their tarot cards read or who he had to talk down from a bad acid trip. He had wonderful guests, gurus and, and uh, Hopi Indians and... You know, people who had been abducted on flying saucers and all that. And, and what one of the tricks of the show was that the three of us discovered that we could improvise together. Bergman threw us into the show by announcing he was going to have an Oz Film Festival in Los Angeles. And so we all became various directors of films that were going to be shown. And we discovered not only that we improvised beautifully together, that Bergman was a terrific twisted straight man, but the phone calls that came in were also, they accepted every crazy idea that we threw out there. And the most exciting one was Phil Austin. This is, mind you, that like the late, the mid, the late 60s, Phil Austin was, uh, portrayed a character named Jack Love, who was uh, a, a leather-clad um, um, filmmaker for uh, adult movies, as he called them, movies for the bedroom. And he had done one movie called Blondie Pays the Rent. <laughs> right? And so he said, uh, 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 can I play an excerpt from it? I show you an excerpt? And everybody said, sure. So they started to play it. And Bergman says, no, no, stop, wait, no, no. You can't show a dirty movie on the radio. I'll lose my license. And the phones lit up. And the people were saying, you can't censor this man. He's an artist. He's making movies, <laughs> you know, that, that some of us believe in. You let him show his movie on the radio. And that's when we went, oh, boy, uh, we are really on to something. Let, let me jump in here for just a second and, and, and remind people that you're listening to a great storyteller today, but I didn't realize it was sort of serendipitous that you all got together in that radio studio and magic happened. Uh, that's yep. pretty cool. I want to ask you to reflect a little bit, though, on the pioneers 
who led the way, the Stan Freebergs and the Alan Shermans, I mean, the great comedy albums. Uh, and you guys did something that was, I think, very much akin to the golden age. You created with sound effects and music and crazy voices these these theaters of the mind episodes. What were some of your influences? Well, the most major influence was uh, an English radio show called The Goon Show. Oh, The Goon Show. Peter okay, Sellers and Spike company. Spike yeah. and Harry Seacombe and Peter Sellers. Oh. And if for people who don't know it, you know, Google it. Google the goons. Uh, it is it is rapid fire, crazy, off the wall, surrealistic, wonderful comedy with crazy sound effects and and funny music. And it was on the air for you know through all the war years and everything. That was a big uh, that was a, a show that we all loved and and ha- had in common. But also, uh, I, I I was thinking back on some of my other influences. Besides Bob and Ray, oh yes, and, okay, and Ernie Kovacs, oh, right. Giants. There was Beyond the Fringe. <laughs> yes, remember that? I do. I do remember Beyond the Fringe. Yep, I do. Yeah, with Peter Cook and Dudley Moore, right? And it was like a precursor of Monty Python, really, uh, Beyond the Fringe. And and I saw them on Broadway, and they also were doing crazy English surrealistic comedy. They did a terrific Shakespearean parody, and oh, it was just delightful. And uh, and so, uh, plus, obviously, Stan Freeberg doing his funny record parodies, uh, you know, uh, and uh, and Alan Sherman, as you mentioned. Uh, but but also, I listened to, you know, all of the stand-up comics who were releasing um, the records at that time. Because my family, thank goodness, my family, a Midwestern family from Goshen and Elkhart, Indiana, uh, had were. Have the have the humor gene, okay? <laughs> yes. Even though I'm Irish and Amish, <clears throat> we don't think of the Amish as being particularly funny people. You know what I mean? But uh, let's go hey. lift a bond together. Hey, that's a good. You, time. you know what's interesting, Phil? As I talk to you, uh, my situation is I met a, a friend of mine in college. We're still together as best buddies and business partners in the production world, and we do a lot of fun stuff out of sheer boredom on occasion. But what what's great about your story, that's magic in a bottle. It doesn't happen very often that you, you link up and have the similar mindset when it comes to humor. Yes, I mean, you're absolutely right. That's rare. Of course, and of course uh, Jordan, that was one of the reasons why we, we ultimately became uh, celebrated in the country, because uh, just like you, uh, when, when, okay, first of all, we were making records. Uh, you, you throw a record out into the world in those days. We knew we weren't going to get airplay because we had, as you suggested, we created a long-form comedy uh, approach. Yep. Our first record, Waiting for the Electrician or Someone Like Him, the entire second side was dedicated to one story, which ended, by the way, with the plague. Okay? We, we did a, a parody of a... <laughs> <laughs> I shouldn't. Be That's lying. a great punchline. Ends with yeah, a play. We did the parody of a of a talk of not a talk show of a quiz show called "Beat the Reaper," and in that show, the contestant was injected with various diseases, and he had like thirty <laughs> seconds to analyze his symptoms and 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 name the disease, name that disease, so that the, the topless nurse Judy could give him an antidote. Oh, All right, so funny. <laughs> and he's doing fine. Phil Austin played this role. He was doing fine until he was injected with one particular thing. He couldn't figure out what it was. And the, and the master of ceremonies, uh, played by Peter, says, Oh, I'm sorry. You didn't guess it right. You've got 
the plague. <laughs> and everybody applauds. Da, 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 da. And, and then the audience starts going, the plague, wait, the plague, the plague, the plague, plague. And a, a riot breaks out. And Austin is forced to flee the studio. And he's trying to get uh, away from this mob. And he uh, hails a cab. And, a, and, and people are running up to him and saying, touch me, touch me. Because, you see, he was famous now. Yes. And they wanted to catch the plague from him. Oh, I love it. Metaphor. And what's great about all of this, you guys did it without having to spend millions of dollars in some movie set somewhere. It's all in the imagination. That's the brilliance of Fire Sign Theater. It's, it's... Well, I'll tell you, Jordan, again, you're hitting, hitting the nail on the head. But uh, uh, the reason that we were able to do what we did was because of a guy named John McClure, who was working. We had a contract with Columbia Records, and John McClure was the head of the Spoken Arts Division. And when, when the other suits, Clive Davis and, and the lot, didn't know who, what are, what are, who are these guys? What are they trying to do? You know, our mm. first record didn't sell that well. And, you know, I don't understand this. McClure said, I'm going to sign these guys to a Spoken Arts contract because they're geniuses and they're revolutionizing a comedy. <clears throat> so they said, okay. And that meant that we didn't have to pay for studio time. Mm. Uh-huh. Under, the, under the, uh, the rigors of that contract, we, for, uh, in exchange for a reduced royalty, <laughs> we were able to have unlimited studio time. And that allowed us to write our material. We tried a lot of it out in front of live audiences at a place called uh, the Ash Grove, uh, where the the credibility gap with Harry Shearer uh, and, and oh, yeah. Landon and the rest yeah. of them also used to perform, and uh, and we would then go in and write, and then we could take what we'd written into the studio, and record it, listen to it, improvise from it, uh, and and informed by that, go back and continue the writing. Nobody it, else has ever been able to do anything. You like know that that. that that sounds reminiscent uh, in a weird way of what happened in the vaudeville years when uh, say the Marx brothers would take a show on the road and work out the material until they were so adept at it then they'd make a movie. I mean it's similar Absolutely in a sense. Absolutely correct. Yeah. They used to they used to go up to the Libero Theater uh, in the Santa Barbara and and as, as you suggested work out the gags, find out what what you know resonated with the audience or what fell flat, <clears throat> polish it, and then lay it down on film. We really wanted to do that, but we never got entree to uh, movies or much television because what we were doing was, at the time, considered to be pretty revolutionary. You know, We were making a fun of the society. We were trying to deprogram people from the commercial, the brainwashing of commercialism, and we were trying to, to tell people... Uh, it was an anti-war message, of course, and a pro-life message. But we also were trying to tell people that they had, politically, they had to think for themselves. Okay? Uh, in, in the first record, I, you know, in our, 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 our next record was How Can You Be in Two Places at Once You're Not Anywhere at All, which had on the flip side Nick Danger, Third Eye. Oh, yes. <laughs> okay? Ask that was a that. record, Jordan, that got us national attention because instead of being, you know, surrealistically... Um, the storyline was not just surrealistic. The Nick Danger storyline was a distortion, uh, a reinvention of the classic the noir, detective noir radio shows. Okay, so people could glom onto that. Said, "Oh yeah, 
I see what they're making fun of here, and oh my gosh, look what they're doing with it. Our third record, Don't Crush That Dwarf, Hand Me the Pliers, became a monster hit. Uh, <laughs> the dwarf became a monster hit. <laughs> and it was about television, a day in the life of television, or a life in the day. And we had worked that out on the stage, and in the record, we in, kind of invented the remote control. Click, 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 uh, yeah. so we could go from one place to another. Well, that record had such a social impact that the Library of Congress, about five years ago, uh, entered it into their historical recordings, flew us down for a, a ceremony, press conference, and a lovely lunch at the library, and that led, several years later, to the induction of the uh, Firesign Theater archives, the purchase of the archives for a tidy sum. Uh, and so if you want to learn more about the Firesign Theater and you, you live near Washington, D.C., you can go into the library, and soon there will be a whole archival uh, display and everything like that. Very thrilling, very uh, I, thrilling. I, I wanted to ask you... About uh, the just serendipity, to... one more serendipity. Oh, story. sure, please, go ahead. <clears throat> uh, I had gone back to New York... Okay, Firesign Theater was just kind of starting. Uh, we hadn't done our first record yet, but we were getting pretty hot on the radio, which is what this uh, this vinyl limited two CD edition, dope of the seventies, is uh, celebrating. Okay, uh, and and I had gone back to close up my apartment in, in New York because <clears throat> uh, I I knew my destiny was to stay in Los Angeles and pursue this this uh, this crazy career. And I was living with a girl named Diana Dew, who invented electric clothing for disco dancing. She used translucent uh, plastic strips in vinyl dresses that would light up briefly with a charge. And, and she could make the, uh, the pattern go around the dress or flash intermittently. It was amazing. Diana Dew. She later changed her name to Daisy Duck and married uh, one of my uh, childhood friends, from Goshen, Indiana, who was a guitarist who wrote uh, uh, some wonderful uh, pieces uh, uh, for Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, uh, our affair had kind of reached its end. And I knew it, and she knew it, so we were having this conversation, uh, and the phone rang. And she picks it up, she says, it's for you. And it was Peter Bergman. And he said, there's a ticket waiting for you, to fly back to L.A. It's in the Black Rock building, CBS. We're going to do our first record, Waiting for the Electrician or Someone Like Him, based on a skit that we had done. And I said, Diana, I love you. Bye-bye. Uh, and, and that was it, the beginning of our recording career. Boy, Peter Bergman knew how to pick up the phone and call you at the right time, didn't he? Yeah, uh, did he? He, he had a knack for that. I, I, I was just making notes as you were talking about uh, Nick Danger, and I wrote down two names that I'm, I'm sure you are very well familiar with these two, and they're well-known. One is particularly well-known, Garrison Keeler, who's been a guest on the podcast from Prairie Home Companion, of course, who does Guy Noir, which yep, is a right. beautiful homage to you. And then the other one, do you ever work with Dick Orkin over the years? With the oh, indeed. Yeah. Oh, yeah, the late, great Dick Orkin. He was with Chicken Man, the series that yeah, ran forever. Yeah, we worked with Dick and Bert. Yeah. Okay, Chicken Man was, was of course, their uh, key to success. Right. But both of them, both Dick and Bert, uh, ran a commercial uh, production house in L.A. Yeah, the Radio and Ranch. so yeah. uh, I also have a, you know, a, a separate career uh, as a voiceover artist 
and uh, I'm I'm Howard on the Rugrats, you know, for 14 years. Yes, yes, right, yeah, and uh, and I've done all kinds of voices for Disney and Pixar movies uh, over the years. You know, Monsters Incorporated, uh, Finding Nemo, uh, Toy Story one and two, blah blah blah, which has been great fun. And so, <clears throat> my voiceover career was in many ways helped by uh, these fans, these fanboys. And we were fanboys of them. Oh, okay, so we would word. we would do work together. Uh, uh, Dick Orkin had a place called Radio Ranch. Yes, yes. In Hollywood, when he yeah. he split off from Bert, and gosh, they they actually produced a Firesign Theater project called "The Nick Danger in the Case of the Missing Shoe." Okay, mm-hmm. and uh, he, it, the, the idea was he wanted us to he wanted to do a, a radio series with us. Okay. So he turned his studio over to us. We made this record. Uh, he couldn't make a deal, but the record is out there in the ether, and you can you can hear it. Uh, and uh, uh, the, the only stuff that Firesign was able to do on film was in the early days of cable. We did a thing called The Madhouse of Dr. Fear, uh, starring Adams, uh, what's his name, uh, from... Uh, this and that awful, I can't remember his name. Uh, who, who, who is the star of uh, uh, Agent 99? Oh, uh, Don Adams. Don! Don Adams. Missed right. it by that Don much. Don okay, Adams, yes, gotcha. Right? right. Who was then an unknown. No, of course not. He's very well known. And, and the Firesign Theater. And, uh, and, we, and it was made up of cut-ups of public domain horror movies overdubbed by us. Procter and Bergman, who were a spin-off of Firesign Theater, who toured for years and years and years. We uh, also did a, ra- a movie called J-Men Forever, yes. which has become a cult favorite. You can <laughs> Google it. And it's a, it's a cut-up, overdubbed, of all of the great cliffhanger serials. Okay? Now, one, one more thing about Bergman, Proctor and Bergman. <clears throat> the title of my book is Where's My Fortune Cookie? And the reason it's called that is because Peter and I, when we were touring, we happened to to be in a, after a show in San Francisco, we went into a famous Chinese restaurant called the Golden Dragon, and it was like 2.30 in the morning, and as we were just bending over, as I was just bending over having a sip of soup, gunfire suddenly broke out, and I heard crash, crash, bang, bang, scream, scream, and I felt things flying over my head. So I go right under the table, you know, behind the steel column of the table, Peter drops to the floor, too, and our, our friend Bill Alexander drops to the floor, but he'd already been shot. Oh, my God. A, a bullet had ricocheted off the floor, a machine gun bullet, and is still lodged behind his knee to oh. this very day. It was a Chinese gangland r- r- uh, shooting, uh, retaliatory shooting of the Joe Fong boys versus the Watching. Oh. And uh, there were three guys, one with a pistol, one with a shotgun, one with a machine gun, and they, they sprayed bullets all throughout this restaurant, killing five innocent people oh and wounding God. 11. Now, here's the kick. After this is over, I realized that a girlfriend of mine had told me about this shooting. I'd spent an evening with her, catching up. We were, we'd been uh, friends before. And she said, I don't like to tell bad news to people, but you're going to be involved in a gangland shooting between foreigners, and people will be killed and wounded around you, and you and Peter will escape 
unscathed. That's eerie. That's chill-inducing. <laughs> oh, please. You but sh- here's the real kicker. You should have asked her what the lottery number would be that week. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, the, the real, her name is Sharon McCann, by the way. The real kicker, and the way that I reconnected with her, is another psychic story that's in the book. <laughs> it's in the book. We'll, but, we'll uh, read that and, and get back oh, to please. you. Oh, <laughs> please. You've got to read it. It's, it's a real page-turner, and it's, it's all true. It was just even more bizarre. But uh, so, <clears throat> pardon me. So at the uh, at one of the mm, uh, memorials that we did for Peter Bergman when he passed away, what over five or six years ago now, of leukemia, uh, was at a place called the Electric Lodge in uh, Venice, and one of our dear friends, uh, uh, who is um, uh, a patron, I guess one could say, of the Fireside Theater. She arranged for fortune cookies to be handed to the audience with Peter Bergman's for fortune cookies to be handed out to the audience with uh, a, a fortune inside that had Peter Bergman's date of birth and, and date of death and a name of an album on the other side. And I said, oh, my God, that, that is so wonderful, wonderful of you to do that. And it's because of, you know, the gangland shooting. And she said, what? I said, oh. you, you, you know, the Golden Dragon Massacre? That Peter and I survived. She says, "What are you talking about?" I said, "Wait a minute. You <laughs> you don't know about that shooting? No. Well, then why did you make these fortune cookies?" And this is what she told me. Peter Bergman came to me in a dream and said, "I never got my fortune cookie." Oh my gosh! Is that a great story? Wow! Holy smokes! Oh, man. You, you belong you know, on, mean, on the late Art Bell show with all these stories, my gosh. Yeah, we just did Coast to Coast. <laughs> I was going to uh, say. With, with uh, our pundit, uh, Ian Pundit, lots yes. of fun, and I've done that show before. But yeah, and remember, we did an album called Everything You Know Is Wrong, which is a parody of, of Coast yeah. to Coast. Wow. It, it's so interesting. <laughs> it was also done as a short film. It's so interesting when you have an opportunity to look at the body of work, and it's your body of work, and you realize so many things happened around it and in it, and and it reflected what was going on. But some of these stories are really awesome. I've just got two more quickie questions to uh, okay. shoot your way. And, and obviously, people can go to firesigntheater.com and also to standuprecords.com to get this beautiful new package, Dope Humor of the 70s, Firesign Theater. Two things. One, both have to do with producing the bits because the humor is, I think it's timeless in so many ways. And there's a lot of punnery and language fun and so forth. I kept thinking of my friend Richard Letterer, who must love you guys. Oh, sure. You probably yeah, know him. in fact, him. I just got a, a, a connection to him and I'm going to be in touch with him soon. He, he is, he oh, is delightful. He is, he is. I was one of my favorite people. Anyway, two things. One, I, w- I want you to comment on the voice work, because am I correct that you did a lot of the female voices? Yes, you are. <laughs> you know, and, and it's ironic, because when I was at Alan Stevenson School in New York, every year they do a Gilbert and Sullivan show, and it was a boys' school. It's yeah. still a boys' school. Sure. So I, I played <laughs> the female leads in uh, The Pirates of Penzance, and Iolanthe, okay? That's mm. <laughs> so, all, so, you know, because I was a boy soprano, ah. okay? And, and so I could reach all those high notes, you know? And, 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 uh, and, and ironically, <clears throat> that, came, uh, that was, became handy for me in Fireside Theater, because just like Monty Python, uh, who were also inspired by us, by the way, sure. who you've had a chance to hang out with, they, they portrayed all the female yep. characters yep. 
you know, until they got a little more famous, and then they put some broads in there for, for uh, <laughs> you know, for authenticity. Yes. Which we did, too. Yes. You know, actually from the beginning. Uh, we, we, yeah. we, were, we were not adverse to uh, using uh, women at all, especially wives. Oh, yes. It uh, keeps you know? keeps the but home yeah, front uh, happy. I, I, I was responsible for most of the oh, uh, female voices. That's great. The other question is more of an observation. We're living in the most amazing age in terms of production, both video and audio. I grew up an analog guy. I played records in college, and I cut tape and all that. I don't know if you were physically involved in the engineering of it, but these are the days when you probably even foleyed some of the sound effects, I'm guessing. Are you uh, kidding? They used they called me Darth Foley. <laughs> okay, I was responsible for almost all of the, the Foley work that we did. And, and yes, again, you alluded to the fact that we were inspired most greatly, and I, we didn't, I didn't say this until now, by early radio. Mm. You know, we, we, yes, we talked about the, the great comedians and Bob and Ray and all that who influenced us all on the radio and early television. But we, all, the one thing we had in common because of our age was we all grew up listening to the radio, okay? That's and, right. And so we, we uh, the first day that we went in to do some recording at Columbia Studios, they were bringing up from the basement of the studios sound effects equipment from the old radio days. Oh, that's... Yes, like a little door, you know, and, and marching feet and a wind machine. We're talking touch yeah, tomb here. All we're talking in battleship gray. Oh. And, and they were going to throw them out. No. They said, oh, no, 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 we, we can use them, we can use them. Uh, and, and, and indeed we did. Uh, uh, but, but also uh, the, the studios we were working in were, were old radio studios at Columbia Square in Hollywood. Yeah. Okay? So we were actually recording in a studio that Bob Hope used to do his, his radio show in, because one of the studios had space for an audience and everything. And then the other smaller studios, my God, they did all kinds of famous radio shows there. I think Jack Betty actually worked that, that space as well. Wow. So there was this whole radio magic around what we were doing. By the way, I am doing a podcast uh, in which we do talk about some of these things called Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show, which I hope you will enjoy. And you can go to sexyboomers.com. Sexyboomers.com. And we interview people like our fans and friends like John Goodman, Harry Shearer, my partner David Osman, Penn Gillette, and, uh, and, and the, the, present, the, the one that's on the air right now is with Weird Al Yankovic. And we oh. have relationships with all these people. Penn Gillette, a big gawky kid used to come to see Procter and Bergman shows when we were touring the Midwest. And finally, after like the third time he was there, we said, oh, come on, kid, let's go have a bite to eat after the show. And, and, we, and, and we became friends. The next thing I know, I'm, I'm watching his show in Hollywood with this guy named Teller, okay, <laughs> and Mofo the mind-reading gorilla. Mm. <clears throat> and, and his career was taking off. Also, when, when Peter and I played in uh, Houston and Austin, we met a guy named Harry Anderson. Oh, my okay, goodness. Like loved him. Doing magic drinks. Loved him. Loved him so okay, much. So we said, listen, we don't like the, the guy who wanted to open for us in Austin had some routine where he was wearing a gorilla suit, and, and we just didn't think it was appropriate for, for our show. So we said, Harry, could you, do you do an act? Do you have an act? He said, oh, yeah, sure. So 
we said we hired him. We said come open oh, for us. Wow. That's a great story. It's so interesting, and I could talk to you all day, but it's so interesting. The people you're mentioning, the names you're rolling off, Harry Shearer and, of course, Penn and and Harry Anderson, they all share something in common with you and your group and, I think, me. We all love to play. We are people who love to just goof and play and and make things out of whole cloth and make things magically appear. And through the audio medium, which is so magical and so wonderful, and and podcasts, uh, the hottest thing now, what does that tell you? People love audio. So I'm thrilled. And I listen to John Goodman. Uh, He he was on WBAI radio in New York improvising on a show called Citizen Kafka. Didn't know that. Wow. Right? So again, and and you know John Goodman loves to play. Yes. You know, he, yes. He's always got a twinkle in his eye, even if he's playing, you know, a a, a dope addicted murderer or something. Yeah. He's 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 a, a playster. Yeah. He's, he's yeah. He, uh, the joy of of acting. Uh, my wife Melinda Peterson and I are in a theater company here called the Antius Company, which is a classical theater company, mm-hmm. and we've been doing classical plays uh, in Glendale now for about fifteen years. Unfortunately, as you know. Everything's dark right now. Sure. Uh, sure. You know, we're unable to pursue it, uh, but uh, it's been a great joy because it keeps my chops alive. You know, learning lines at 80 years old. Oh, God bless you, man. With a family of, of, of top professional friends. You know, with a great crew of lighting, lighting, lighting directors and costume designers and prop and sound. You know, it's just, it, it keeps us alive. I can absolutely hear it. I mean, we've never met or anything, but I can just hear that passion and energy. And I'm so excited for you guys to have this particular album coming out now. I think we need it now more than ever. <laughs> oh, thank you. Uh, it's so true. Yeah. Uh, dope humor of the 70s uh, is appealing to all the dopes out there, right? Who who just can't understand what's going on? Well, anymore. we need we need the sanity you know, of Fireside Theater. Uh, uh, yeah, a good laugh will will uh, will help lighten your spirit and get you through these these very challenging, difficult, dark times. Gosh, that was fun. Before I close out, a few more quick hits from the dope humor of the '70s album. Hey, just because you're out drinking with your friends on the stoop doesn't mean you have to be one. Step up to the many tastes of Vino Brothers Wine. There's Vino White. It's dry. Add water. It's wet. Add sugar. It's a fine sherry. Add ketchup and blow in the bottle. It's a sparkling rosé. Vino Brothers. W-I-N-O-B-R-O-S. Look for the bottle shaped like a paper bag. Hello, dear friends. This is Eric Burton. Yes, they did take away our music. But now you can have it back on these three wonderful voice prints of the 60s. All your magic memories of flying over the music capitals of the world will come rushing back with the first twang of a lead guitar. Now listen to all the monsters of the 60s at once. The Rolling Who, Derek and the Taylors, Clive Beetle, Bing Crosby, Stills, and Aunt Nash. Songs like I've Got My Hand on Your Mouse, Helicopter 59, Tight Shoes, I'll Be Gumping You, and hundreds of others. Goodness gracious, great God Almighty, it's like having now right in your living room. 
So don't wait till the midnight hour. Send 15 seconds in code or credit to Rock and Roll Memory Bank, Hong Kong, New York, York. The album Dope Humor of the 70s, 34 tracks spread over four record sides, and the download version is greatly expanded, including 46 tracks totaling over two hours. Please go to firesigntheater.com, that's firesigntheater.com, and check out some great stuff. My thanks as always to Dan Tebow of Fast Twitch Media, Ken Carberry at Chart Productions, and most importantly to you for checking us out on a regular basis. Enjoy your holidays, stay safe, and we'll catch you next time. This is Jordan, as always, saying be well so you can do good. Take care.